0: You're listening to the Co Main Event Podcast. And now, your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas.
1: That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co host from bleacherreport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me as always. From MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, the Co-Main Event Podcast has a new logo and a new website. That's right. But it's still just the same old show. As evidenced, I think, by the fact that we totally jinxed the shit out of Demetrius Johnson during last week's show. Did we, though? I mean, I feel like I knew it was happening as it happened. Like, as we were talking about it, in my mind, I was like, oh, we're jinxing the shit out of Demetrius Johnson. I didn't fully understand the gravity at that stage. Yeah. But I came to understand it
2: over the next week or so. Does that mean Demetrius Johnson will not be buying one of our new t-shirts soon to be out?
1: I mean, I don't know. He probably made a healthy paycheck, despite the fact that he... uh,
2: Do we offer them in Men's small?
1: I mean, yeah, we can get whatever size the champ needs, man. The former okay. champ.
2: Feels like he's a tank top guy.
1: Oh, yeah. I think that that's... I think there's a good chance we can hook Demetrius Johnson up with a with a tank top.
2: Okay. You know, I just came from, obviously, the gas station down the street where right. I stopped to get my uh, Rainforest coffee. Yep. Yep. And this is going to let people in a little bit about what's going on here in Montana, but naturally, in the gas station are two video poker Kino machines. Yep. Because... What, why even go to a gas station if you can't gamble there? Like, it's just a waste of your time. Now, I've kind of, I've been living in Montana long enough now that that's not really news to me anymore. I'm, I, I barely even notice it. Until today, I notice in the gas station, at the gas station video poker machine, there is a sign on it that says reserved. Someone fucking reserved the video poker machine in the gas station, which the moment you even speak up to ask for that, they should immediately call like a gambling addicts hotline for you and just hand you the phone
1: probably somebody has to roll in on their lunch hour my man go in there uh <laughs> okay you know get their cup of noodles get an ice cream sandwich big old fountain pop and spend the hour uh losing trying to strike the money they have
2: earned that morning
1: trying to strike it rich on the kino machine you don't want to roll in for your lunch hour your scheduled hour gambling hour and find some other a hole has the the kino machine locked down you your time is limited does he understand that you are dealing with a limited window? See, I'm now mad on behalf of the the reserved
2: you, re- you reserved that, didn't you?
1: Yes. Yeah. That is your when machine. When we're done here, I'm going over there. And the, the day that I hit eight out of eight, you and me are done. <laughs> <It's>
2: over. <laughs> so if I had tried to sit down there and put a dollar in the machine, that would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa there, tough guy. Yeah, yeah. That's Chad Dundas's machine. That's right. What do you think you're doing? That's exactly right. Because That's think Chad's. You have been to the gas station
1: enough to know that the people who work there are Very loyal. That's how I would describe them.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Very loyal. Also, uh, interesting tattoo choices, I'd say.
1: Hey, don't forget about the upcoming Co-Main Event Podcast Book Club. We're all reading Fletch. Remember that? Goes down Friday, August 31st. That's just in in a few weeks. And as far as we know, wait, the Kindle version will be available tomorrow.
2: Yeah, I already got a physical copy, though.
1: Well, I, yeah, I had a pre-existing physical copy, but there are people out there listening to the sounds of our voices that are going to want to hook themselves up with the ebook version.
2: Yeah, and again, I feel like we've said it a few times, but it's true. You can really blow through this book. It is like 90% dialogue, and it's really fun and quick and funny, and uh, yeah, even if you—I mean, you could pick it up. I'm not saying you should do this. You could pick it up probably two, three days before— the book club podcast and you can still finish it up
1: you know what you're doing right now though right you're setting people up for disaster i'm being realistic Some motherfuckers are staying up all night now the night before the podcast drops cramming flesh
2: i'm sure they've had worse nights
1: i'm saying get it get an early start
2: everybody responsible old man dundas here with the advice you know you're not going to take
1: i remember that's august 31st if you want to get your comments into us you can send those uh through the podcast. We will read them as we record the, the show. It's going to be a fun time. I'm looking forward to it. We got music again this week from our guy, the fifth element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out over on Twitter at the fifth element, facebook.com slash the fifth element or soundcloud.com slash the fifth element official. As you know, that's the word, the, with an A. Ben, before we move on, tell the kids how they can get down with the, with the Patreon.
2: You go to patreon.com slash co-made event, find all sorts of good stuff. Live streams, serialized noir fiction, uh, all kinds of extra goodies available just to Patreons of the CME. Also, we'd be remiss this week if we did not uh, give a shout-out at the request of Patreon subscriber Henrik Nilsson to, quote, the fictional country of Sweden. So shout-out to the fictional nation called Sweden three rounds as usual
1: this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one I mean you gotta admire the big brass balls on Henry Cejudo here is a dude who wins the flyweight title via razor close borderline dubious decision from the most dominant champion in the UFC and keeping in mind that this win merely pulls him to one and one against said champion, jumps on the mic while the upside-down belt is still warm from the clammy fingers of Dana White and starts talking about how he deserves a super fight. Grapefruits. Grapefruits, Ben.
2: Brass grapefruits.
1: Big brass grapefruits swinging around between the legs of Henry Cejudo.
2: <laughs> I, it's You keep making it more graphic. I don't understand why. And in round number two, Tilly Bills and Stills. And in round
1: number three, it's official. Eight days after taking a plea deal for tossing a metal hand truck through the window of a UFC charter bus, Conor McGregor is booked in the biggest fight of the year against the guy he threw the hand truck at. All that plus Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Just Saying Stuff in Master Tweet Theater. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Irish media personality... Eamon Dunphy.
2: Hey. I You nailed that on the pronunciation? I'm sure you nailed it. It's probably Eamon. Eamon Dunphy. Well, maybe you just go ahead and do the accent now if you're going to go all that. He loves
1: the show, apparently. Did you see UFC 227, he writes, because I didn't. Apart from some fight pass cards, I've never skipped out on an event. Sure, I read that the DJ fight was good, but I got a good night's sleep instead. Then in parentheses, he says, Irish fan. I assume meaning that he would have had to stay up late to watch this. It makes sense. The thing is, if UFC 227's buy rate is as bad as people expect it to be, and Cejudo is already looking for a champ versus champ super fight, meaning he thinks he's already beat everyone at flyweight, maybe Dana should scrap the flyweight division. The UFC loves to put titles on posters, but the truth is that title isn't having an effect on anybody. If they put Henzo versus Shamrock on a poster for a UFC event, it would outsell a flyweight title fight. So... Is it time to cut the flyweight failure?
2: Okay, this is something that Danny Downs also brought up when we were doing trading shots, which kind of stunned me because I was like, wait a minute, we just saw the best fight we've seen in the division. You finally have somebody else as champion. It also seemed like, at least from the inside the bubble perspective, Demetrius Johnson was finally getting some love. Huge pop for him in the arena when they announced him at this one. They go out there, they put on a great fight. People may have kind of warmed the idea that the flyweights can deliver good stuff. I get it. Maybe a whole lot of other people decided they weren't going to pony up the money for this one, so they didn't see it, but they heard about it. It seems like now there's finally light at the end of the tunnel. Why are people talking about getting rid of it now? Uh, See,
1: when I read someone talking about how maybe we should axe the flyweight division, my first response is, ease back. Take a chill pill here, everybody. It seems to me like shit just got interesting. Like, shit just now got interesting at the men's 125-pound division, which I'm sure we will talk plenty about in round number one. And I guess I would just follow that up to say, like, is it causing actual harm to have the men's flyweight division? I would argue no. If, like, the worst thing that you can say about it is that the fights are really awesome, but, like, a a small minority of, of MMA viewers will pay money to watch them fight, I'm not sure that I necessarily see that as like a huge uh, sticking point for the flyweight division. Like, I don't see an argument for not having it around, especially if you're going to roll out 150,000 live events per year, as the UFC will do, will continue to do, when, right. you know, in the new ESPN deal. And if we uh, love to put off. gold
2: on the poster so damn much that we can't stop just creating new belts, why are you going to get rid of one? Plus, I mean, maybe the idea is just like, how do you want to think about it? What if we think about the UFC flyweight division and the flyweight title as, you know, the way a publishing house used to think of really serious literary endeavors where it's like, okay, you'll put out these, this book of short stories by some short story master. Maybe only 20,000 people in America give a shit about that. But it helps you sleep a little better at night after you're putting out a Kardashian memoir uh, and really pumping a lot of promotional muscle into that. You, it allows you to be like, okay, here's the, the serious stuff. We also do some less serious stuff, but this is for the hardcores who are really about that life. Yeah. I, I'd be fine if that's the way you want to think about it.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of stunned. I don't know how you could watch Henry Cejudo versus Demetrius Johnson here in this rematch, and I assume, oh, to by his own admission, Eamon Dunphy did not. But, uh, like, I don't know how you watch that, and then you're like, eh, done with this. Yeah. Because, like, that was a good fight. It was a great fight. And it was fun to watch. Yes. It was one of those Tents. fights that, yeah, I was just going to say, creates this, like, overwhelming feeling of tension that that you ride out for the full 25 minutes which in retrospect makes me feel kind of weird that that's something i find enjoyable just feeling really kind of like anxious and tense well for a half hour
2: with demetrius johnson you haven't felt that you, when's the last time you felt like you were going into the fifth round of a demetrius johnson fight and the outcome was at all in doubt uh, it, you haven't had that. So I, I understand how that's a new feeling, especially with him. I also, though, as soon as Eamon Dumphy mentions that you could put uh, Henzo versus Shamrock on a poster for a UFC event and it would outsell a flyweight title fight, I'm like, God damn it, he might be right.
1: Well, yeah, that's a, that's a valid point. But, I mean, you could say that a lot about a lot of people. Yeah, two, two
2: things can be true. There. Toting the gold around these yeah.
1: days. Next question this week comes to us from Isaac Spooner, who writes... Spare a word for Cub Swanson versus Hanatu Moikano.
2: Yeah, yeah, we, we can will. do that. We can we spare will. a word for the guy Cubby, Cubby Sampson going out there. You knew this was a tough draw for him from the get-go.
1: Yeah, I think he was like a little shade more than like a three-to-one underdog. Yeah, it was, at he at was, was a heavy fight.
2: underdog in this And one. the
1: thing is like, Hanatu uh, Moikano is one of these dudes who flies under the radar only because the UFC has like 500 fighters under contract. But this dude is good, and he has been good. And if you watched his fight against T-City, uh Brian Ortega, when they fought at UFC 214, uh, which is so far the dude's only career loss, that was one of the fights where Moicano was winning. This was one yeah. of the ones that Brian Ortega grabbed a, a, a submission, a guillotine choke, uh, with three minutes and 29 seconds gone in the third round in a fight where he was probably going to lose the decision and ends up beating Moicano, but like... You know, at the featherweight division at 145 pounds, we just haven't talked about the guy that much. But Hanato Moikano is super talented. Like, he's a good fighter. Are you
2: saying that against T-City, he would have won if he hadn't lost? Exactly. Yes, he belforted it.
1: That's something <laughs> we say around the office. Right. Yeah. Someone, uh, they really, they, they just belforted it.
2: Yeah. Uh, he, But you know, you go out there and you, you drop Cubby Samson with a jab. Yeah. Right there. You kind of open some eyes. And then even you know, when he had... Uh, Swanson a little hurt and he goes for a takedown and you're thinking, what are you doing trying to take the guy down when you just, you, you pieced him up on the feet a little bit and then he, he chokes him out there and you're like, okay, I guess you knew what you were doing. But I was a little bit, I found it curious afterwards where he gets on the mic and he's like, I want the rematch with Brian Ortega for an interim title fight. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> now, that's a realist right there, I my understand. friend. He knows how shit works around here these days. I understand how you might have arrived at this conclusion. <laughs> if you're Renato Moicano, that, where you think like, okay, how does this all work? What's actually like a legitimate possibility? I know. Max Holloway, we don't know what his situation is. The belt's kind of uh, out of commission. Uh, Ortega needs a fight. He was the next guy in line. I had that loss to him. You know, I want a belt, but I'm not gonna get the real one, therefore like I'll ask and it's just like, I wish they would have cut to Brian Ortega in the crowd right then. Uh we saw him earlier in the crowd, you know, doing flashing the LA sign. I wish they would have cut to the, the look on his face right then. So he's been like, What? Fuck that, dude. There's no there's no upside to that fight for if you're Brian Ortega. Like he already said he wouldn't fight for an interim belt for good goddamn reason when you see how quickly those things can just disappear when the UFC decides it's not convenient anymore and then you want him to fight a guy who he already beat after coming close to losing and say, like, all right, put your, your title shot basically up for grabs for that nothing belt that you already turned down against a guy where there's not that much of an upside for you if you, if you beat him again. Like, there's just, pick out somebody else is what I'm saying, to Hinato Moikano. Put yourself in a better position for later on instead of trying to think about how do you put some gold around your waist right now because that plan, while it has some pragmatic Elements to it. I think it can do better. Shout
1: out, by the way, to whoever produces the. uh, The segments where they show people in the audience at the UFC events, because this one at UFC uh, 227 that went from Chris Pratt to Kelvin Gasolum. And we thought Kelvin Gasolum was going to win best dressed of the night when he was wearing, it was like a, a salmon colored blazer With like a a plaid pattern on it. We thought he was going to take that home until we saw Cody Garbrandt walk in wearing like, what was a suit with like birds all over it or something. I don't know what the fuck it was, but it was glorious.
2: A friend of mine commented how that suit would make a really nice couch. Yeah.
1: Yes, there you go. So we go from Pratt to uh, Gastelum in an awesome suit to Brian Ortega dancing for the for the hometown fans and throwing up the L.A. smash cut. To Matt Hughes wearing an, a shirt that says 8-Man on it,
2: which I assume he's trying to advertise something, but I don't even give a shit what it is. Probably like 8-Man football played in Hillsborough or yeah. something. Because they don't have enough kids in the high school to, to play a full squad. Matt Matt Hughes in an 8-Man t-shirt.
1: I'm into it. Pan down Chuck Liddell. Still,
2: Whoever booked this up is, is,
1: knows is, what I want. <laughs> they know how I'm spending my Saturday night.
2: Yeah. But, they, really, they took you to like the a kind of devolution in a way there.
1: <laughs> what about, uh, what can be said, Ben, about our guy, Cubby Sampson, uh, Kevin Luke Swanson. Yeah. Now the, the loser of three in a row dating back to December of 2017, when he lost again, uh, by guillotine choke to Brian Ortega. And I mean, you look at the guys he's lost to Ortega, Frankie Edgar and Renato Micano. uh, that those are all good, good fighters, like nothing to sneeze at there at the same time. 34 years old for Cub Swanson, th- loser of three in a row. What are we thinking now? What, what are we thinking about Cub Swanson? What's his role? Where's he going?
2: What's what's all this leading to? Well, it seems like this fight told you a little bit about what the UFC thinks his role is right now. Yeah. Like that you can still stick him on a card anywhere and people will say, oh, Cub Swanson's on it? Like, I'll watch that. Who's he fighting? A guy who previously I probably did not care that much about or even know. Uh, but the, that guy beats Cub Swanson. Now he's somebody that we know. And there's a value in being those kind of guys, but you do wonder how long you can do it if you're just, you know, you're you're losing, you're losing to the top of the division. And yet, man, if I'm Cub Swanson, every time they call me up and they're like, all right, we got a new young killer streaking up the ranks. What do you say? You and him six weeks from now. And you're just like, man, can I get a peer? Can I get somebody else from like the bottom half of the the top 10 maybe who, or can I just get somebody like another one of those where it seems like, just two guys who are going to go out there and throw hammers at each other's head and it's a fun fight and we're not thinking about rankings necessarily. Because it seems like they've been trying to slot him into this role for a while. Remember when he fought the Korean Superboy and it seemed like, okay, that one felt like that's what was trying to happen there and Cub Swanson raged against the dying of the light there beat the korean superboy said i'm not that stepping stone yet and now it seems like he is becoming that stepping stone and he's an effective one because people care about him they like to see him fight he has an exciting style he's going to go out there and give you a show uh but not give him a whole lot of easy nights of work here
1: so you're saying the next time the ufc calls cub swanson and they're like mir Bektic, bektik what do you think Cub Swanson should be like, hold on. I'm going to go ahead and conference in Darren Elkins real fast. (laughs) Maybe we can get something done. Ben. Uh,
2: I mean, if they call me, if I'm Cub Swanson, they call me and they say, they even start to say the beat. If I even (laughs) even hear like a Z sound, if I hear a Magomed anywhere in the name that you offer me, I'm going, oh, man, I think it's a bad connection. I can't hear you, Sean. (laughs) Yeah. Going through a tunnel, Sean. Sorry. If I were a Hollywood
1: casting director. Which why not? I mean, any at any point, I could become one. Yeah, I'm putting Cub Swanson in everything. Every crowd scene I've got where I need somebody who looks tough, firemen, cops, uh, professional
2: fighter, mercenary. Well, see, and he's got the legionnaire between the mustache and the tattoos. He can yes. do all that. Cub Swanson. And he's done a bunch of stuntman work and stuff. Hasn't Has he? he? Yeah, he's done like TV movie stuff.
1: I'm telling you, I'm putting Cub Cub Swanson is going to be like my calling card. Yeah. You'll be sitting at home watching a show, you'll see a gladiator clink by in his <laughs> arm, and you're like, Oh, that's Cub Swanson. This,
2: this must, be, must Ch- be Chad
1: a Chad Dunnis joint.
2: Yeah. Uh he could also do kind of like an Eddie Murphy thing where he can play the leader of a prison gang, yes. but also Perfect. the prison guard whose job it is to like break it up.
1: Yes. Was it you that tweeted that his mustache says yes. you know why I pulled you over? And his <laughs> tattoos say
2: his, his tattoos say, here, hide this. And if anybody asks, I was with you all day yesterday. That's a
1: good tweet. That's Thank a you. solid tweet. This is my
2: most popular tweet from Fight Night. So I'm glad you, you took this moment to single it out.
1: Next question this week comes to us from Patrick Milder. He writes, I've listened to the CME for a while now and I'm a big fan. Thank you, Patrick Milder. You guys make my morning commute to the lab. Hold on. <laughs> the lab? Does he mean the MMA lab in uh, Arizona? I or? mean, this could mean a lot of things. Okay. He could be a scientist. Breaking
2: could, bad style
1: meth cooker? Yeah, he could be driving to the R V right now <laughs> to meet Jesse Pinkman. Yeah. Uh maybe he's a music producer. Oh, okay. He's going to the lab to cook cook up some fresh beats. I don't know. I'm forty. Uh <laughs> all right, well i moving wanna commute to the lab, a much more bearable experience. I've noticed you criticize UFC matchmaking in many ways. Uh, for propping up young talents by feeding them easy opponents, matchmaking young lions or matching young lions against other young studs and for matching young promising talent with former champs that have some name recognition. I'm just wondering, ideally if you were the UFC's matchmakers, how would you advance new young talent whilst? Okay. Wow. Well, he throws a whilst in here, which makes me think probably a scientist. Yeah. What I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. You, well, Hey, you don't know, or maybe he's going to the writing lab to help some undergrads with their five paragraph essay.
2: Really overthinking this.
1: While avoiding the cans, young studs, and UFC events, UFC vets who are past their prime. Now this, Ben, guilt, we're guilty yeah, of this. Yeah,
2: this is a good question.
1: What What is the ideal UFC matchmaking strategy? Because we do criticize what they do a lot. I feel like it's easy to criticize what they do, and frankly, uh, maybe a little lazy. And I feel like UFC matchmaker job is probably a lot harder than people give it credit for. A
2: lot harder, I, I agree. And I think also, like, not only is it right to think about what should the philosophy be, but... You have to take into account the practical considerations that sometimes take your philosophy out of it. Because sometimes it's who can we get, who can we get on this date? Right. Like somebody somebody drops out, uh, or you're just trying to fill out the card, or you have somebody who you haven't given them a fight in six months, and you got to get them a fight, otherwise you you risk being in breach of contract. You know the UFC matchmakers have talked about all that kind of struggle, and so it's not just like you're able to sit down and put your ideal philosophical approach to matchmaking into play all the time. Sometimes it's, it's just going to have to be a different thing just based on availability, but it's true. And I'll say like, my thinking on this has changed as time has gone on, uh, because while I, I used to like the thing the USC used to do where it was just like, just take two guys who are both good and just bash them together over and over again and it was it made sense especially when you look at how those things have gone in the past where if you're trying to match this guy against this guy because you want this guy to win and you're you're thinking ahead like hey fighter A beats fighter B so that he can fight fighter C later on you don't know you're not always going to get the outcome that you want and so you have to be able to make matches where you can deal with it either way no matter who wins You've you got something you can work with. You you don't want to do basically the Sage Northcutt thing where you match them up against the Brian Barbarinas of the world. And when Brian Barberina wins, you're like, eh, we don't really have an, a, a plan for that one. Like we only planned on this one guy winning. And so people can see it when you're doing it a lot of the time. They don't like it. It's transparent. And it can go wrong. Yeah. But then the problem with matching up the young guys, the young studs against each other, is that you kind of wear them out pretty quickly. Right.
1: No, I agree. And I think that at this point, my thinking is sort of a mismatch or like a a mishmash of both of those philosophies, because the thing that makes the UFC great or has historically made it great is its ability to match the best against the best. Right. It's like when the UFC was was at the high point of its wave of popularity and arguably going through the golden era, the thing that was cool about it was that it was so starkly different from boxing in that you got to see chuck liddell fight randy couture frankly like whereas if those guys were boxers and they both fought for different promoters maybe you never get to see that fight let alone see it three times and i so i think that like there's still definitely a place for that and a, like a big place for that frankly in the ufc landscape because just think about uh mcgregor versus Nurmagomedov, which we're going to talk about in round number three but still like conor mcgregor uh, he hasn't fought in the UFC in a while. He had the kind of like, uh, exhibition style boxing match against Floyd Mayweather, which was one of the biggest pay-per-view events of all time. Uh, he had the thing with Nate Diaz. Doesn't, isn't it one of the things that makes Nurmi versus McGregor feel awesome is that it's like a return to, uh, like the best versus the best. You have the, yes. champ, the guy who's the champ now against Connor who never, uh, rightfully lost his belt. It's not like a gimmick match for Conor, it's not another Diaz fight, it's not him going up to 170. Yeah. It's like it's right where he should be fighting the best fucking guy.
2: Yeah. No, and the, I, that's what I wrote in my column after they announced it was basically like here's the rare instance where the money fight is also like the most logical and like legitimate fight that right. you can make there. And that doesn't happen a whole lot. Well, yeah. I, you know, and and I understand how, especially the, we criticize, and maybe we just did, the practice of taking veterans and using them to build up young guys. Right. Throwing them in there. Um, And yet... That is just kind of a staple of the fight game and has been for a long, long time.
1: Yeah, no, I, yeah, I I think there's, there's a place for that also. Uh, Just to finish my thought though, like in terms of a, like a mishmash of philosophies, like I, I continue to want to see the very best fight the very best in the UFC. But at the same time, and especially today when you're doing so many events and you got so many people under contract and we're struggling just to like figure out who these people are, I think that there is also now a place for, Building people up, it's like you have to get to a particular threshold, and after that, best fight the best. But, like, look at yair Rodriguez, right? Who seemed like he was uh, uh riding a bullet train to the top, and then they kind of fed him to Frankie Edgar a little bit too early. And, like, who knows if he's ever going to be able to be rehabilitated from that? Clearly, now they want to feed him to Zabit, right? Now, his UFC career uh you you don't wanna say it's ruined, but it's like taking a weird turn now, just because of that so like I think there's a place for building guys up to the point where they feel really essential to the to the competitive atmosphere in the u f c and then throwing them in an empty crown royal bag and shaking it up and see who comes out
2: okay i I guess like you talk about getting them to that level. You see what's going on in the Contender Series? Especially when you see, like, Greg Hardy. Have you seen the dude Greg Hardy is going to fight
1: tomorrow? Yeah, yes. They are doing a good job, frankly, with these Contender Series promos. Like, they are doing a good job trying to interest people in the Contender Series. And I think that the Contender Series is an able and good son of the Ultimate Fighter. It feels like the right move with the Ultimate Fighter kind of being phased out. But it felt super manipulative to me to get me super involved with this heavyweight dude as part of this, like, well-produced vignette about his life. And then at the end, they're like, tune in on Tuesday when he fights Greg Hardy. And I was just like, oh, so this guy that I spent five minutes, like, emotionally investing in is about to get knocked the fuck out in, like, 22 seconds.
2: Yes. Great. Yeah.
1: At the hands of a a guy who, who we can, at this point, all agree is not the kind of guy you want to root for. Kind
2: of a problem. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But they're, I mean, they're doing a good job, frankly. Like, I've seen a few of them now. They The one are. from last week, too, they did the same thing. And, like, you get to see just, like, a glimmer. And, again, they're not, like, reinventing the wheel. As we have said before, the UFC kind of only knows one way to sell fights, and they're going to stick to it. But, like, man, when they stick the landing, you get to see just a glimmer of, like, what the UFC promotional machine is capable of.
2: Yes. And, in the case of the Contender Series, producing all this content at a fraction of the usual cost.
1: There you go. Uh, last question this week comes to us from Westminster Davidson.
2: Okay, that's definitely a real person.
1: Writing us, I assume, from his uh, his boarding school. Mm-hmm. East Coast boarding school, where his parents sent him uh, to prep him for the Ivy League. Yeah. He writes, guys, Kevin Holland didn't win the fight, but this crazy motherfucker won my heart. <laughs> Would like to hear my two favorite shit-eating wild men discourse that shit. Do it.
2: Yeah. Now that... That was a good way to kick off a UFC paper. per It was. Just, Just some, some silly, crazy shit. Yes.
1: <laughs> but again, like, and Kevin Holland is one of these dudes who came off the Contender Series, right? Yeah. He got, got his entree into the UFC because he won a fight on the Contender Series.
2: It felt... And because he was willing to step up here and... Yeah. It, yeah.
1: Willing to step up and fight a, a guy that, frankly, felt like, uh, like... Made you feel a little bad for Kevin Holland, honestly, once it was all said and done here. Even though... For most of it, he appeared to be having the greatest time of his life,
2: well, yeah, he also is has that great style that I love to watch where you're like, "Well, this is gonna go terribly. This guy looks like he wants out of there. Is he turning around and walking away with oh holy shit, he just did something crazy and he kind of got back in this fight uh so yeah, I mean, it was a a good showing in a fight where he was kind of experienced and skill wise overmatched uh and goes out there a fight that he is really supposed to lose, any way you look at it, and he finds a way to just make it into where we have some reason to care about him for his next fight. And I guess that's the realistically probably the best you could hope for out of that situation.
1: Yeah, and again, like, Tiago Santos is one of these dudes that, frankly, give me a million uh, Kevin Hollins, right? (laughs) Give me 1,000 Kevin Hollins and I'll watch your show all day. Uh, But Tiago Santos is one of these dudes who's like totally under the radar in the UFC's current avalanche of shows and talent. And yet he goes out there with fucking Thor's hammer tattooed across his chest. Just lost to David branch. Like doesn't seem like he's about to be the champion, but like, this is a tough dude who just looks like a murderer who could easily be a champion in a lot of organizations. And he's just out there. Just another dude in the UFC. Just being a straight up killer. Thor's hammer. (laughs) Tattooed across his chest.
2: I thought it was a gavel. Maybe like he's a really, he's a judicial enthusiast.
1: Okay. Maybe, and that's why uh, he had beef with David, the executive branch.
2: There you go. Man, we retroactively really <laughs> we'll turned that one into building something. Building storylines yeah. over here.
1: Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we are not recording the podcast. Ben stuff is happening. Things are happening behind the scenes that people don't even know about. But the Breakfast of Champions is going to get kind of like a uh, a reboot. That's right. We're talking about it internally.
2: A facelift. We're having you might a lot say. of
1: internal conversations, meetings, and memos flying back and forth about what what's going to happen with the Breakfast of Champions. I did want to say I think there's going to be cool stuff in the new version of the Breakfast of Champions, perhaps with added opportunities for people to be able to listen to us talk. But if the people are out there. And there's they, something that they want from the Breakfast of Champions, let us know. Because we're taking suggestions right now.
2: Tasteful nudes. How about, I'll just throw that one out there. Yeah, tasteful nudes. Tasteful nudes. Not
1: us, but maybe Sir Nigel.
2: Maybe I will draw Chad like one of my French girls.
1: Gross anyway go to the website sign up for the breakfast of champions if you don't like it it's super easy to unsubscribe but we are going to be doing some different stuff with it coming up and we want to hear from you about what maybe would interest you what would make you look forward to the breakfast of champions every week so if you got ideas uh hit us up as for right now though we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one Well, Ben, here we are, Monday, August the 6th, the year of our Lord, 2018, talking about new UFC men's flyweight champion, Henry Cejudo, who takes the split decision from Demetrius Johnson, 48-47, 47-48, 48-47 and the as the co-main event of UFC 227 this past uh, Saturday night at Staples Center in Los Angeles, the hometown of Henry Cejudo. Let's start with the decision, then maybe we can talk about the fight, then maybe we can talk about both these guys moving forward. Uh, Did you think Henry Cejudo was going to win this, and do you think he should have won this?
2: I didn't think he was going to win the decision. I would have scored it for Demetrius Johnson. Very slim margin, though. I can't get super mad about it. I can't say this was a robbery or anything just because I would have scored The thing, I guess, where I part ways with the judges is when you get a takedown on a guy and all you can do is just try to lay there and hold it. Like, just lay there in half guard and hold it. Don't really advance the position. Don't land any strikes, really. Don't do much with it at all. You're just so focused on keeping the guy there. I don't give that a ton of weight. And that, it seemed like, the moments where you could make the case Henry Cejudo is winning this round, they mostly came down to that. Yeah.
1: Uh, It does really bring to the fore like the shifting philosophies of how to value wrestling in mixed martial arts. And basically like, it's kind of like a gray area decision, man, really, because it just comes down to, to, you know, the rules of this sport leaving so much up to interpretation by the judges and by the referees. And ultimately, I think who you think Rightfully won Henry Cejudo versus Demetrius Johnson too. Uh, it comes down to like how you value these aspects of the sport, because I, I I I think that like if you if you accept the ten point must system over five rounds and twenty five minutes, it's defensible that Henry Cejudo won this fight and is now the men's flyweight champion in the UFC. But like, did you watch this fight and coming out of it think Henry Cejudo is the superior mixed martial artist to Demetrius Johnson? Because I didn't.
2: No, I didn't either.
1: I felt like most of the way, Demetrius Johnson is leading the dance here. But it's just that, like, the momentum swings are so noticeable in that, what was it, the second, fourth, and fifth round, Cejudo scores takedowns with a minute or two left on the clock. Other than that, like, I felt like Demetrius Johnson was kind of having his way.
2: Right. I mean, it wasn't like Demetrius Johnson was dominating the fight or anything. I mean, You know, and especially in the fourth and the fifth round, the striking exchanges even started to get more even. And maybe I mean, we can chalk some of that up to injuries that we can talk about a little bit later, What James Johnson said he suffered in this fight. But uh, Henry Cejudo was kind of closing the gap there, and so I think that I can understand how the judges seeing, especially like, you know, in the fifth round or something, you see where it looks like the striking is fairly even, and then he also gets a takedown, you're like, okay, well, that's the deciding factor for me. All right, you know, maybe, but... I thought that when, you know, if you're coming away looking at it as a broad picture and being like, who do I think is the better fighter out of that, uh, Demetrius Johnson's creativity, his range of weapons, like the the full complement of stuff that he can bring to a fight, I still think is superior to Henry Sudo. If you have him fight a third time, I'm going to pick Demetrius Johnson in a third fight. Uh, but can I get really worked up about a decision going Henry Cejudo's way here? No, I mean, I kind of get it. Demetrius Johnson seemed like even he kind of got it. You can at least understand how somebody might see it that way. And honestly, way better than I thought Henry Cejudo was going to do.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like much better than any, basically anybody was giving him credit leading up uh, to this rematch. Because the big question was, you know, can he close the experience gap on Demetrius Johnson? Uh, while still being somewhat inexperienced in mixed martial arts, while still, you know, having fought Demetrius Johnson 27 months ago and basically getting worked. So, like, f- from that standpoint, absolutely, Henry Cejudo, like, authored a a, a terrific fight here. The part where I, uh, the part that gives me pause is when I think that Henry Cejudo basically had to fight Henry Cejudo's perfect fight. To edge Demetrius Johnson by questionable split decision. Yeah, and it feels kind of it feels weird to me anytime the title changes hands on one of these fights that's so close and like comes down to uh, perception and gray area. Because like let's be honest, the stuff Demetrius Johnson was doing, you know, maybe it causes more damage than the takedowns and control of Henry Cejudo. But like when when you're scoring primarily through leg kicks when you're scoring a lot of your your points through leg kicks and body kicks, again, you're leaving it to the judges to invoke a a cliche of mixed martial arts in how they're going to score that, like how they're going to value those leg kicks.
2: True. But I don't know. Are you saying, because I get people all the time say like, okay, you got to really beat the champion. But I don't, judges have a hard enough time, it seems, using the actual scoring criteria that we have in this sport. Are we going to ask them to, use a slightly different scoring criteria when it's a title fight? Well,
1: this is where we get into the area of, like, impossible questions to answer, right? Because I think there is, at least among some people, a a current of this idea that you got to beat the man to be the man. you got to, like, really beat the champion to take his title away. And it does feel weird and anticlimactic to kind of see a division have this sort of, like, wholesale change based on a fight that is so close. But I would also say... It's also just how shit happens a lot at these lighter weight classes, right? We see this over and over again where you essentially get a fight. Uh, not that this one is too close to call, but you get into a lot of fights that, that seem too close to call where one guy ends up walking away with the belt. Uh, and it, den- it denies us a like, feeling of black and white results and maybe finality or something weird like that. Uh,
2: but then on the flip side would be you might sustain a title run that could have been ended by waiting things in favor of the champion the moment he shows up
1: yeah and i'm like if i'm being super honest it feels kind of like doubly unfair to have it happen to demetrius johnson right that his historic ufc title run ends in a fight where if you squint at it from a distance you might have been able to call it the
2: other way i don't know well then that Though, I think, brings us to the question of, what do you do now? Because, as you mentioned, the big brass grapefruit balls clanging uh, monstrously between Henry Cejudo's legs as he walks. He gets on the mic and says, I want to go up and wait to 135, challenge challenge a champion there. And you get it. It's kind of the year of the super fight. It's a shrewd move. Yeah. Everybody wants to be a champ champ these days. Plus, he's already fought at 135. He, he has a little bit of a feel for the division there. And you know that if there's one thing you can do as a flyweight champion just by watching Demetrius Johnson's counterexample is really jump up and embrace that challenge of going up in weight, which is what he really did not do. Right. And maybe people will love you for it. Yeah. And the UFC will appreciate it.
1: It was one of the things that made that move so bold and shrewd was to like immediately get on the mic. And say that you were going to do the thing that for various reasons Demetrius Johnson had not
2: done. It also has the advantage of, if they grant that wish, keeping you from an immediate rematch with Demetrius Johnson, who you just barely beat.
1: Right. And that's the thing here. Like, considering the title reign that Demetrius Johnson had, considering uh, how this title changed hands at UFC 227, if Demetrius Johnson doesn't get an automatic or immediate rematch against Henry Cejudo, then the game is rigged. Like... Uh, if you're well, gonna, the
2: game is rigged, right yeah so we, we all know, know that.
1: that it is but like if you're going to give cody garbrandt an immediate rematch against tj dillshaw he got stopped in his first title defense how do you not give the guy who's been the champ since 2012 and has been kicking everybody's ass an immediate rematch and, and the lost by that, a split decision, right, by and, the lost by a split decision. and the answer to that question is if you would rather have henry cejudo as flyweight champ and that might be the the next interesting question to take on here whether or not the UFC is is happier with the messenger as its champion
2: yeah maybe I mean it's kind of too soon to tell I think uh I also think that there's there is a practical question of timing here because if Henry Cejudo is ready to go again fairly soon Demetrius Johnson said he thinks he tore his LCL uh broke his foot in the fight and said immediately in the post-fight press conference hey before I can even sign up for another fight i need to know that i can get through an entire training camp so i need to see to my health first and that could take a while and you know i also think it's worth noting just how perfectly and classily uh demetrius johnson handled this loss both in the cage and showing up afterwards and talking about it um but if it turns out that hey it's going to be eight months or something yeah. until demetrius johnson can fight then i, I I would not hate the idea of seeing Henry Cejudo go up and wait there and challenge Tilly Dills. Yeah,
1: no, yeah, if if you have a, a delay in in Demetrius Johnson getting ready to take the fight, then maybe that's the best option. Maybe the, the flyweight, bantamweight super fight is the best option because, uh, as we talked about earlier in the show, neither of these divisions are really lighting the world on fire at the box office. So maybe you can spark a little bit of, of uh, interest in having those two guys fight each other, which... Right, seems like a hell of a fight. I think that there's a, a, yet another aspect to the Henry Cejudo title reign, to Henry Cejudo ending Demetrius Johnson's run of the title, in that we don't know how long Henry Cejudo will even stick around at flyweight. Like, he, has, he cuts a lot of weight. He's big for that, for that weight class. He kind of even uh, intimated after winning the title that his future was probably at 135. So there's just a lot of stuff happening here. There's a lot of uh, uh, things in the mix, and maybe Henry Cejudo, if Henry Cejudo went up to 135 and should beat TJ Dillashaw, which I don't know if that's the way that I would prognosticate it, but like if that happened, would he just stay there? Would you have a vacant title at 125? What would happen? So there's a lot of ins and outs.
2: Yeah, well, like you alluded to though, I think that one thing you have going for you there is that it's not like it completely kills the UFC business model if the flyweight title is out of circulation for a little bit. Right. You can still carry on. Yeah. It, it, there's not going to be a, like less. Uh, snow in the driveway this Christmas just because you don't have that belt going up for grabs a whole bunch of times. So so you do have a little bit of wiggle room there.
1: All right. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, uh, did you see the Darren Till interview? Yeah. That everyone's talking about. Yeah, I think I know where you're going. Weird interview because, like, it's about ten minutes long. The post-fight, or is that the... uh, It's
2: backstage. right, Right,
1: backstage interview. Nine minutes of it, you're thinking... Oh, this Darren Till seems reasonable and smart and honest. And yeah. It's kind of starting to to win me over here. I'm kind of into this Darren Till character.
2: Talks about sparring with Mike Perry. Talks about how Colby Cubington got screwed, even if he is a cunt.
1: Yeah. Then it, right at the end of it, he drops the, my girlfriend, or the, and this is in the guise of how much he cares about being the greatest of all
2: time. How single-minded he is in yeah. his focus.
1: My girlfriend is seven months pregnant, and I don't really care. And I have a child in Brazil that I haven't seen. And I think he said a year, a year, and I don't really care. Are you fucking kidding me? Darren till I'm hoping that things are not as stark as your words make them seem right. And I will also say, he said, well, right before he says this, he said, I don't care about money. All I care about is legacy. I want people to look at the sport and say, this guy was the greatest of all time. At the end of an MMA career, How many people do you think look back and say, I wish I would have worried less about money? (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? I hope you're making it sound worse than it is, Darren Till.
2: (sighs) Fucking kidding me. Well, Chad, you know the UFC had themselves a press conference on Friday. Did they? Yeah. Do tell. Did anything interesting, anything of note happen? Well, we're getting Nate Diaz back. Do you think Nate Diaz was there for the start of the press conference? Well, I... Follow up. Yes. Do you think that once he arrived, Nate Diaz stayed for the entirety of the press conference? Um. No. I'm just gonna guess. No. Are you fucking kidding me? The Nate Diaz software is running exactly as it was written,
1: <laughs>
2: from start to finish.
1: Fucking kidding me! You fucking kidding me! You know who? Uh, who was awesome was when Dustin Poirier followed up with his own tweet yes When Diaz tweeted I'm not fighting at that show f the UFC and Poirier came right back with I'm not fighting at that show either
2: <laughs> sure well, fun I, stuff I, I mean that's just now we're having fun I think I saw maybe it was Brett Okamoto from ESPN I think somebody posted a picture of Dustin Poirier with his phone composing that tweet and you could see the joy on his face <laughs> knowing that this one was going to be a winner
1: about to hit a home run that's going to do it for round number one we will be right back with round number two
2: remember how we were talking about this rematch between Tilly Dills and Cody Garbs and about how the nature of the first fight, where Tilly Dills almost gets knocked out in the first round, Garbrandt does get finished in the second round. It just made you feel like it's a damn coin flip. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen? These guys could fight a hundred times, and each one of them win 50. So it, that's kind of what's exciting about it. But then they go out there for the fight, and it's... Kind of exactly the same thing happened, except for the part where Cody Garbrandt does well. Yeah. The exchange that led up to the ending of the fight feels like everybody was doing their stuff from the first fight. Cody Garbrandt gets into a situation where he's standing there planting his feet, throwing and not, not mindful of the counters coming back at him from Tilly Dills. He gets clipped. He gets hurt. He hangs on for dear life. Even throughout a ton of abuse, seems like he still wants to get up there and fight and get stopped. Tilly Dills, still champion, and feels like he kind of slammed the door on that rivalry, did yeah. he not?
1: It feels like we're flipping a coin that has heads on both sides. That's right. right. And a lot more, One of those
2: trick coins. It
1: feels a lot more like that now. Yeah, and kind of uh, not only slams the door on the rivalry with Cody Garbrandt and, by extension, Team Alpha Male. But, like, really solidifies his position now at 135 pounds. People are out here asking the question whether or not T.J. Dillashaw is the greatest bantamweight of all time, which is, you know,
2: that's a that's a certain— You know what I'm doing right here? You're pumping the brakes. I'm pumping the brakes, Chad. It's a handbrake. You, yeah, well, my feet are out of the frame. You can't see them. But, yeah, pump the brakes. Well,
1: even talking about who is the greatest men's bantamweight of all time is kind of a a, a certain kind of conversation. Right. Because you just don't have not a lot of, of, uh, of people even in that discussion. It's not a it's not like anybody's out here putting up uh, Demetrius Johnson style numbers at at one thirty five. So, yeah, T.J. Dillashaw, great win over Cody Garbrandt. Really, uh, if nothing else, makes himself at home as the champion here. But that, Ben, brings up a lot of interesting questions moving forward. We know he says, uh, bring it on. Let's do it, baby. When discovered or when when uh, confronted with the idea that he might fight Henry Cejudo in a super fight in his next fight you've got Dominic Cruz now just recently medically cleared to return to action floating around always at the top of the title picture and you've got probably the most under the radar title aspirant in the entire UFC in Rafael Sonsao so <laughs> where do we go here with with Tilly Dills and 135 the
2: the two fights well, the, the Sun fight, like, if you want to just be serious, sure. If you want to have fun and make money, probably not. Uh, it depends kind of what the UFC is thinking there. But the two fights I think that are probably the most attractive to the UFC are Tilly Dills and Dominic Cruz and Tilly Dills and Henry Cejudo. But even if you do say, like, all right, maybe they're not available or maybe you have a different time frame in mind and maybe you want to finally give Rafael Sun a damn tile shot that he's earned. It's it's hard for me to think of a fight that you can put together here that I won't happily watch.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh and yet if you're looking to finally make men's bantam weight kind of break out of the bubble a little bit, uh I mean it's not quite as uh ignored as flyweight is, but if you you want to get it up to a next level, I think the super fight probably is the way to go. Yeah. Uh for the hardcores, I think a cruise rematch is something everybody would gleefully watch. I think the, the Sun-South fight, you can't, according to the numbers, complain about.
1: Yeah, and I I mean, I guess it's there's a domino effect at work here where if Demetrius Johnson is indeed injured and he can't come back, I feel uh, most interested in Henry Cejudo versus TJ Dillashaw, only because we've seen TJ Dillashaw versus Dominic Cruz, and it is frankly a matchup that I will... Gladly watch just as you and will we'll be close let 's do it again and again and again, brother, because that 's probably your new coin flip matchup at one thirty five you know raphael Asunsau is tough as hell and is a straight up killer, uh, and like I said, almost nobody seems to know who he is, so like from a hardcore competition based mixed martial arts standpoint, I will also watch that fight i guess i'm what i 'm saying is I hope we get to see them all you're dealing with a lot of uh young men here you know you're not dealing with anybody with the exception of maybe Dominic Cruz. Oh, yeah
2: Yeah, cruise a little you're old. not
1: dealing with anybody that's that's right at the tail end of things so maybe we get to see them all
2: how about uh tilly dills embracing the snake because i fucking it i love it, I love, awesome. it. Yeah. I love
1: it it took me a while to figure it out yeah because he was when he walked out in his you know because reebok's doing these uh Like special shirts for the main event and co main people. Yeah. Henry Sohudo's has a flock of doves on it. Imagine that
2: actually making personalized gear in the fight game. Right.
1: Uh that's the most Henry Cejudo shirt you could possibly have. Put a flock of flock of doves on eleven of them by the way, to uh symbolize Demetrius Johnson's title fights. Uh Tilly Bills walks out in the like the snakeskin print shirt. And for a while, I was like, what is, what's on his shirt? Is that a, is he wearing a snake print shirt? And then, of course, later I realized, oh.
2: He's a snake he's in the grass. Coming his
1: nose at the snake. He's, a, he's accepting he's it. Embracing he's embracing it. He's embracing it. And I couldn't be more into it. Also, it seems like, does he have a snake tattoo now? I think he has a snake tattoo. The boy, I mean, that's, you're, you are embracing it at that point if you were tattooing your skin. I could not be more into that. Here's my question, Ben. Neither the men's bantamweight nor the men's flyweight division are packing them in at the box office. Why is it that bantamweight does not appear to suffer the same outward or prevalent stigma that flyweight does? No one's emailing us this week to say call off the bantamweight division, right? Why is it that we look at 125 and we're like, eh, pull the plug, and yet not all that different of stuff is happening at 135, we're not having that conversation.
2: Yeah, well, you do see, for one thing, more title turnover at 135. So it's not like one guy has been dominating the field for so long that people are going to go on, okay, that guy's the problem. Also, uh, more finishes, it seems, at the top level of 135. Like, these guys going out there and getting into a shootout two times in a row where they it feels like somebody can get knocked out every single time, even when the men's flyweight fight was... Looking really awesome there. I never really felt that immediate sense of this could be over with the next punch. Yeah. So maybe some of that explains it.
1: Well, yeah, and that's maybe a stylistic compliment to uh, TJ Dillashaw and Cody Garbrandt. Speaking of which, Ben, what do we do with a 27-year-old Cody Ray Allen Garbrandt at this point? Because remember when uh, when he was going to be a big deal? Well, I do Not remember that, that long ago. No. It was not. Now he comes off back to back stoppage first and second round TKO KO losses to the nemesis T.J. Dillashaw. Think he just like it, it does. Is this a turning point? Does this feel like uh, like Cody Garbrandt just took the off ramp from the freeway? Like what's happening here?
2: Do you think he can make one twenty five? Oh hell no!
1: <laughs> if anything, well, that guy's going up, right?
2: Well. If you're having trouble standing up to the uh, punching power at 135, you could have a problem if you go up to featherweight. I, if I'm Cody Garbrandt right now, what I'm hoping is that you give me some scrub I can just knock out and get back, remind people that I can do that, and then I hope Dominic Cruz comes in and beats TJ Dillashaw and I get to fight Dominic Cruz again.
1: Because then you got a round robin. Yes. right. You've basically created a closed loop where Dominic Cruz beats TJ Dillashaw... Cody Garbrandt beats Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw beats Cody Garbrandt on and on as a flat circle to right. infinity.
2: Yes, Until Cody Garbrandt, uh, his tattoos fade, the weird alt-right haircut gets gray and uh, Dominic Cruz tears every ligament in his entire body.
1: If there's anyone who feel where it feels more fitting that you discover that his name is Cody Ray Allen Garbrandt, I can't think of it. What are you saying? I just seems like that's a perfect name for him, for okay. Cody Ray Allen, Garbrandt. All right. What do you make of T.J. Dillashaw's, I guess I'm going to say indictment, but it just sort of sounds like at this point everybody's just saying their truth, everyone's just speaking their truth at 135, that Garbrandt fights in a way that he doesn't really have the chin to back up?
2: Maybe. Uh, there might be something to that. At least it seems, if you look at the two matchups with T.J. Dillashaw, that... Uh, he maybe he's so invested in his own punching power that it's harder for him to accept that maybe he can't handle the uh, the shots coming back or you can just get clipped and as we saw with TJ Dillashaw in the first fight I mean sometimes you can recover and sometimes you can't I mean if that just happened at a later point in the round it would be kind of a, a reverse scenario of what happened in the first fight where cuz Cody Garbrandt was still he still wanted to be in that fight. If that had happened, you know, 20 seconds before the end of the round, the way it did happen to Tilly Dills in the first fight, then maybe he survives and maybe he's the one who, who lands a knockout blow in the second one. So, I don't know. I, I would resist the urge to make too many broad sweeping statements about what Cody Garbrandt is capable of for the rest of his life based on what happened in this one fight.
1: Still very young. Only 27 years old. Uh, Sir Nigel Longstock is here, you guys. It's been a while since we caught up with him and played Master Tweet Theater. So we're going to do that. Right now,
2: what's that time again? We welcome back friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am ripe. Okay. Well, it is hot out there, I guess. glistening with sweat. I saw you you had a yoga mat on your back when you came in here
0: indeed sir i was uh playing rugby and i bring the mat to hit any nerds who might try to watch me take my shirt this is sad it's it's a likely story this is
2: sad that you feel the need to do this that's toxic masculinity talking that's what that is i'm just pleased to be displaying masculinity sir i bet you are well i assume you brought us some tweets organized around a theme
0: yes sir i did the theme is surprise endings
2: Oh. All right. Again, this is a a fun theme that if he were to stick to it, I think could really be enjoyable.
1: It's going to be an amusing theme that is almost surely
2: immediately abandoned. Yeah. Well, a
0: surprise ending in itself if I stick with
2: it. Oh, goddammit. All right. When you're ready.
0: Yes, let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Cowboy Astronaut 100s, the cigarette that is definitely not for kids for women! (laughs) Cowboy Astronaut 100s are a slimmer, more elegant version of Cowboy Astronauts that's perfectly suited for today's grown-up ladies, but not for little baby girls. Unwind after a long day working as a princess, a ballerina, or even a dinosaur with flavors adult women love, such as coffee, perfume, and bubblegum. Just remember, they're not for girls, they're for mommies. Cowboy Astronaut 100s, you've come a long way, adult lady.
2: <laughs> okay. God. It's just like we invite a lawsuit into this room every single time, you know?
1: I'm just impressed at the like durability of the Cowboy Astronaut brand.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people identify with the brand.
0: Coca-Cola, Cowboy Astronauts, <laughs> and the Rand Corporation, the three most durable <laughs> brands in America.
2: All right, so you got some tweets? Surprise endings? Indeed,
0: surprise endings. Tweet the first. Old people shouldn't cut weight. They never make it. Except for me and couture, LOL. Hmm.
2: Okay. (sighs) Old people shouldn't cut weight. They never make it except for me and couture. LOL. LOL.
0: Stands for laugh out loud.
2: See, I'm tempted to say Henzo Gracie. Okay, yeah, that's a good guess. And yet, the verbiage, it doesn't feel enough Henzo-ish to me. Do you think that uh, he would go poet Philip Baroni right off the top?
1: I was thinking that, but I don't think this is wild enough for the poet. Okay. But I mean, if that's what you want to guess, I'm not going to stand in your way.
2: Fuck it, that's what I'm guessing.
1: I'm going to go off the beaten path here. I'm going to say Dan Henderson. Huh. Who I don't even know if he has a Twitter Okay, Uh, here we go.
0: Both fine guesses, both old men still capable of making weight, and both wrong. It is Josh the Punk Thompson.
1: Okay, well there was no way we were ever gonna guess that.
0: Yeah. Surprise, he's still included in Master Tweet Theater. Is that the surprise (laughs) ending? (laughs) Indeed. Well I thought So wait, the
1: the surprise ending was the answer to the question?
0: Yeah, it was except me and Couture. That was the surprise. Okay. They never make weight, except for these two examples I can readily furnish.
2: Hmm. They do make weight.
0: Tweet the second. I love
2: Cleveland.
0: It's been my everything for so long, but I don't know how much longer I'll be here. So many things have changed. Maybe it's time to move.
2: Okay. I can think of a couple noted Clevelandites. Clevelanders. Clevelanders, I believe, is what you say. Uh, I'm going to say this one despite a suspicious lack of typos and misspelling. Well, I don't know about the misspellings. I- it could always be there and I just don't see them. But uh, I'm going to say it's Jessica I.
1: Interesting. That's probably going to turn out to be right. But I guess I'm going to go Stipe Miocic just to be different.
0: Stipe. Stipe. Both fine guesses, both 100% Clevelish, but only one correct. It is Jessica I. Boom. Yeah,
1: well, you're just over
2: there playing the Boom. margins now. Hey, listen, don't get bitter. You could have said Jessica I too. True, true.
0: The first words, I love Cleveland. The last, maybe it's time to move.
2: (laughs) Oh, that, I see there. That is a surprise ending. All right. All right. We're kind of two for two in the very liberal interpretation of this theme.
0: Tweet the third. If find is to found and rewind is to rewound, what does that make remind? Fist emoji, smiley face with monocle emoji, American flag emoji, trophy emoji, Mexican flag emoji.
2: Hmm. I got this one, so I'm going to oh, let you, you guess first. Yeah. This was this was notable when I saw it pop up. I think a couple people retweeted it just because their minds were being fucking blown, obviously.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to go with the American flag and Mexican flag as a, a pointer
2: and say Tito Ortiz. You are incorrect. It is Tony Ferguson. It is.
1: It is Tony Ferguson. El Cucuy. Hold on. Is every word capitalized?
0: Every single word.
1: (laughs) See that? I could have thought you could have said that before and I would have known.
0: Everything. Tony Ferguson is such a champion that everything he tweets is a title, apparently.
2: Uh, What's the surprise ending?
0: Uh, the surprise ending is that this doesn't make any goddamn sense. Is that a
2: surprise? I mean, and a that's
1: a very element. Tony Ferguson tweet. It is. Now that I know he authored it.
0: This one doesn't, doesn't quite fit the theme. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you boys. Finally.
2: Maybe the surprise ending was that he actually got our hopes up that he would stick to the theme, only to be dashed.
0: Surprise! What do we do? I'm we make it three
1: you. three tweets? Three tweets. Well, two uh, two and a half yeah
0: you know brownstein said a good ending is both surprising and inevitable yeah,
2: fuck you he's a
0: real he's a theorist <laughs> of drama sir. Move, all right next next week. Moves, moving, moving, moving on moving <laughs> on tweet the fourth vacation effort Um, excuse me tweet the fourth vacation after a lost is number two bullshit
2: vacation after loss L- lost is after
0: sign- a lost
2: i think i got this one too i think i think this is the canadian gangster olivia Albon Mossier. okay oam
1: yeah i might have actually even seen this on twitter
2: you because know, he just lost that fight yeah. he actually has a sense of humor he likes to make a lot of inside jokes about the mma world all the reasons why he's my guy basically summed up in this one tweet
1: I'm going to go with you. I'm going to say OAM here.
0: It is. It is Olivier Mercier. Great, isn't he? Nailed it. We all love him. I just like to say his name. Tweet the fifth. The new iPhone sucks. Thumbs down emoji. Here, new iPhone. Middle finger emoji.
1: Is there a new iPhone?
0: Uh, (laughs) I believe the tweeter in question has acquired an iPhone new to him him yeah i'm gonna say the
1: poet philip baroni here (laughs) just to to pound the nail in
2: all right no that is that is a guess that is probably gonna end up being correct here Uh, i'm gonna say fuck who loves emojis tito ortiz both fine guesses
0: both liable to offer the phone an obscene gesture and both wrong it is nate diaz
2: Okay.
1: Okay, well, see, it makes sense that Nate Diaz would not know that the most recent iPhone came out like a year ago.
2: Also, what's the surprise ending here? I,
0: the fact that he says, here, new iPhone, and then it's a middle finger. Like he's going to give the iPhone a treat,
2: but instead, <laughs> the Stockton Hay buddy we,
1: we were officially calling in a surprise ending when the Diaz brothers end a statement by flipping the bird.
2: Yeah, that's, that's what we're doing now, apparently. I
0: picture him calling a dog, like, here, boy, middle finger.
2: Okay, well, thank you for that. That, I guess, wraps up Master Tweet Theater. What else you got going on, Sir Nigel?
0: You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished work on an exciting project about a man whose autistic brother struggles to make it in the Minneapolis music scene.
2: I see him. What's it called? It's
0: called Purple Rain Man.
2: (laughs) What role (laughs) do you play? I'm
0: proud of that one. I play a rival band leader who won't stop setting off firecrackers.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir.
1: Well, Ben, earlier in the show, I posited to you that if Demetrius Johnson does not get an immediate rematch with Henry Cejudo, pending his health, that the game is rigged. Sign number two that the game may be fucking rigged, my friend, is Conor McGregor essentially rolling out of New York District Court, having accepted a plea deal for throwing a metal hand truck through the window of a UFC charter bus with the intent if you could say there was intent uh, with perhaps striking Habib Nurmagomedov with it. Let's just say rolling straight to the contract signing where he inks the deal to have the biggest fight of the UFC, a biggest fight of the year in the UFC, be Conor McGregor against Habib Nurmagomedov. Because we all, we're all just admitting now that the, the, the shit's just a game, right? That like, the UFC has to come out and pretend that it's mad at Conor McGregor for a while, but really by storming the gates at the Barclays Center, he just made this shit more marketable, right? Well, yeah. I mean, we're just, it's a game. It's, it's all, all a
2: game. It's already in the commercial, the, you know, the hand truck, the breaking glass sound effect. It's all there, which you knew it would be. You knew the minute you saw it that this is, this is the hype reel. Uh, I was kind of surprised when I went back to look at it for purposes of writing. I column about it. Four months Four months between saying this is the most disgusting thing that has ever happened in the history of the company to it being a damn advertisement.
1: I remember that because it was my birthday. Trying to take the day off. (laughs) Conor McGregor shows up and throws a hand truck through the window of of a bus. People got... Not everybody. I was fairly comfortable with the ratio by the time all was said and done. People got incensed some people got incensed on the twitter machine over the weekend when i merely pointed out the irony of the ufc of dana white saying that conor mcgregor throwing the hand truck through the bus window was quote the most disgusting thing that had ever happened in the history of the company and then immediately using that in the promo video to sell the fight and i know you gotta do it yeah you can't not use the footage once it happens, but I feel like if you can't at least nod to the irony, I feel worried about the future of the species.
2: You're saying that's, that's a difference between being a mark and being in on, the, in on the drama of it all?
1: A lot of the people who got mad did seem to have McGregor as their avatar. <laughs> a lot of people also seem to think that I was the one saying that McGregor's actions were disgusting. Like, maybe we don't know what quotation marks are used for Well, that's anymore. possible. But that just to me added another layer yeah. on top of the whole thing. Because that's not me saying it. Oh no.
2: It could be that's the
1: president of the company.
2: That at Connor is God sixty nine sixty nine does not read thoroughly to look for the quotation marks and context in every tweet. That's possible, is what I'm saying. Yeah, there you go. I one of the things that I kinda asked myself though in writing about this was like you said, you gotta do it. You got the footage, yeah. you and honestly. It would be like revisionist history in a way to put this matchup together and not mention this personal history between them.
0: Right.
2: Like, that's that's the story of the fight. We want the UFC to tell stories when it promotes these fights. That is what happened. So it makes sense to use it. I guess the part that bothers me, the part where it starts to then feel a little dishonest is the part where you got super mad about it and then you did fucking nothing. Right. Like that and the justification for doing nothing is the weakest thing I've ever heard from Dana White, and I've heard some weak shit come out of there, but like the thing where he says, "Well, hey, first it was he's suffered a lot of repercussions from this thing. He's getting sued, he had the legal uh issue to deal with, which you know that didn't really end up being uh hard labor exactly uh, when they came down to sentence him for that, um but then saying, "Hey, he hasn't fought in two years. How much longer do you want him to be out? How much longer do you How much longer do you want to see him suspended?" He hasn't fought in two years, not because of this. Right. It's not like, you're not going to sell us that as like, that was a suspension. That was the UFC punishing him when the thing happened four months ago. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm saying if I'm running the UFC, I absolutely use the footage, right? Do you use the footage? 100% use the footage to sell this fight.
2: Do you use the footage of Dana White saying this is the most disgusting thing that's ever happened?
1: Well, now you're starting to get to the heart of it. Because people that want to explain to me that it would be quote-unquote promotional malpractice. Luke Thomas the checks in the mail <laughs> for the UFC not to include the the hand truck throwing incident seem to overlook the fact that the UFC picks and chooses what it uses to promote fights all the time. Do you think that the the dominant storyline leading up to Brock Lesnar versus Daniel Cormier will be about how Brock Lesnar failed a drug test after his fight against Mark Hunt? no doubtful probably I would say not doubtful. so i mean well, it's, uh, we're we're not on a uh, we are not on a strict truth telling <laughs> regimen here right yes. like that, no one's troubled by that down at the zufa llc headquarters but we digress everything else aside habib nurmagomedov versus conor mcgregor is a hell of a fight
2: yes absolutely
1: it's going to be the biggest fight of the year it's a picture-perfect, almost throwback matchup of Styles. I have no fucking idea what's going to happen, and I couldn't be more
2: hyped for it. If you had to guess how this one goes, me, I say, Nurmi takes him down over and over again and batters his face. And I'm not saying... I mean, I think... uh Conor McGregor is probably not as one-dimensional as his detractors would have us believe, also not as godlike as his followers want to believe, but I also think you haven't fought in this long, you got to hurry up and in a couple months get ready to fight one of the best lightweights in the world who happens to be incredibly strong in the area where you are weakest. Right.
1: The two areas, uh, well, okay. not only grappling but also cardio.
2: Yeah, well okay. those are Conor's two biggest weaknesses. We yeah. see
1: him get tired
2: Yes. If in the fights that he loses. If he can be pushed, if he can be forced to fight at somebody else's pace uh, and at somebody else's game and range uh, rather than his own, then yeah, he, he can tire out. And the same does not really happen to Nurmi.
1: I think everyone should know in advance that I have been wrong about every Conor McGregor fight.
2: I think I have too.
1: I thought he was going to lose to Jose Aldo. Uh, I thought he was going to beat Nate Diaz. Yep, me too. And I thought he was going to lose to Alvarez. Uh,
2: and I think I got that one
1: BT dubs. He just fucking worked those two dudes in Jose Aldo and, uh, and Eddie Alvarez, but I agree with you. And like the odds came out this week and Nurmagomedov is a slight favorite. I think Connor was going off at like plus plus one sixty five. I feel like that's about right for the reasons that you just explained Nurmagomedov is strong where Connor McGregor is weak. I mean, the same can be said for McGregor. He's, he's, his strength is Nurmagomedov's weakness. Uh, but Nurmagomedov, it seems like the way to bet here to me, just if you're thinking about Connor coming off, off this long layoff, it's a pretty big task, honestly, to come back after not having fought in the UFC since what the end of 2016. And now they're going to throw you in there with Habib Nurmagomedov. That being said, the, the thing that like, the thing that makes me feel not a hundred percent confident in picking this fight is that Nurmagomedov at times can be reckless. He's so aggressive. Right. He can be reckless and as everybody knows, you give Conor
2: McGregor one clean shot with the left and he can shut your lights out. Right. And we've seen uh, Nurmagomedov get hurt by punches before. Like he, he, some of the fight, I think in that Michael Johnson fight, there were moments where, you know, he gets hit cleanly and there's a little bit of wobble in the legs and like you said, like whether it's recklessness or just supreme confidence in his takedowns, a lot of it is just coming straight at you. To take you down and you know what's coming and he's daring you to stop it. And so, yeah, not out of the question at all that a clean left hand finds its way through there and knocks him out. Yeah. Um, but I, I think one thing you have to say about this is that Conor McGregor's in a position where even after all the shit he's done and after all the problems he's caused, he could still call us fights or call us shots if he wants to. Yeah. You know, He could still tell the UFC, like, no, nah, I don't care about this Nurmagomedov thing. Give me Nate Diaz again. Uh, you know, give me somebody else. He he could do whatever he wants to, and the UFC would go along with it right. just because they they know the sweet sweet money that comes with him every time you put him on a card, and for him to say, "All right, give me the absolute toughest fight, not only for me, but basically for anyone in the division," that's the fight I want. That the the lightweight title fight and my first fight back. I think that puts to rest at least the criticism that Conor McGregor is avoiding bad style matchups. Yeah, I mean, you got to yeah, give him absolutely. his props for that. Right,
1: And not only avoiding bad style matchups, but just, like, uh, emphasizing money over, like, uh, legacy or whatever else is happening in the UFC. Like, to turn around and fight Habib Nur- Nurmagomedov makes me feel a little bit like maybe we're dealing with, uh, you know, Conor version 2.0 and coming back after uh, making so much money in the Mayweather fight. And he said after that fight, like, now legacy is the thing that matters to me because he basically, you know, secured his financial future through a couple of generations as long as we're not spending too much money renting out theme parks in in Dublin for the family to go eat ice cream.
2: Uh, Russian compounds.
1: Right. So, like, yeah, man, like, it's absolutely 100% to his credit that he's taken this fight, that this is the fight he wants. Uh, And it'll be interesting to see moving forward, like, what happens and you, the kind of fights that he takes in the future or the, you know, how long he's going to stick around. Yeah. Is this a must win for him? Like if, if Connor rolls in essentially off the bench and gets taken down by Nurmagomedov and loses either by stoppage or just like a grinding decision, like how much does that affect his popularity? Do you think?
2: Some, but I also think that it's going to take more than one loss to, yeah. to shake those. I mean, especially like after we lost that Nate Diaz fight which it seemed like that was a way less justifiable fight to lose when you consider all the circumstances. Uh, And still, his popularity kind of soared after that one. You know, the rematch sold way more than the the first fight did.
1: I think among MMA fans, like, Conor has kind of got it made at this point. Even if he loses to Nurmi, we're all going to want to watch all of the rest of his fights because we know what he brings to the table. The people that I worry about are the sort of casual fans who sat through the build-up to mayweather mcgregor and then you know watched connor lose that one if he then comes back to the ufc where everyone is like oh you know if you if you don't closely follow the sport you could be like well he's the best at the at ufc
2: yeah and then he comes back the best ufc guy
1: yeah he comes back to to quote unquote train ufc again and immediately loses to this russian whose name you can't pronounce at that point i think you might be like i've been had yeah
2: (laughs) i've been sold a bill of goods
1: anyway we'll have plenty of time to talk about Connor versus Nurmi moving forward. Ben, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff?
2: Chad, you've seen the uh, bracket release today for the Bellator Welterweight Grand Prix. Did I? Yeah. Uh, first round matchups, you're looking at guys like Paul Daly versus MVP. That fight that we've been talking about fucking forever, it seems like, in, in the Bellator Welterweight division. Uh, other side of the bracket, you got Rory McDonald and John Fitch going up against each other in the first round. You got Douglas Lima in a rematch against uh, Andre Koroshkov. You got Neiman Gracie uh, against Ed Ruth. Uh, and then you got Lorenz Larkin trying to fight his way in uh, as an alternate. I guess I'm just saying, I look at this first round series of matchups, especially the Paul Daly MVP, John Fitch, Rory McDonald uh, thing, and I, what I see is a company that is not taken tomorrow for granted. They know when you put together a tournament, You can't just think, all right, here, let's pave the way for a good semifinal matchup. No, you've got to put your damn cards on the table now. Tomorrow may never come. Scott Coker knows that when putting together a tournament as well as anyone does after his experience in Strikeforce. I'm just saying I like what's going on over there right now in Bellator. I see what you're doing. You're putting all the good stuff out there, and you're making sure we get some of this stuff done. Just saying. just saying.
1: Well, Ben, I'm just saying. I looked at the brackets for the Bellator, Bellator Welterweight Grand Prix, and I'm just saying, wait, do I have to figure out what Dazen is? No, no. Da- is it Dazen? Is it Dazen? I remembered vaguely in the deep recesses of my mind brain seeing that Bellator had signed some kind of streaming deal with In. <laughs> and now I look at the press release for the Welterweight Grand Prix tournament, which is some shit that I got to watch. And I see that it's airing exclusively on Dazzin? Can that be true? I mean, that's what it says for the opening round. I'm just
2: telling you what I saw in the press release. But one hates to retread here over the obvious. Bellator is owned by a TV network. Yeah. They still want
1: us to figure out what Dazzin is. And probably put our credit card information in there
2: where it'll be safe i know this is coming up in the just saying segment but the tone of your voice suggests that there's a little bit of are you fucking kidding me in there as well i'm just saying
1: i gotta figure out what Dazzin is now just saying that's gonna do it for this week's co-main event podcast we'll be back next week to continue to break down all the stuff happening in mixed martial arts and look ahead to the next good stuff that the ufc and bellator and maybe pfl who knows we're gonna get crazy up in here have to offer us as of right now though we are done we are through we are out
2: I felt similarly when I saw that in order to see the announcement, the live announcement of the Brackets, you had to uh, watch it on what they refer to as IGTV. See, that's a different thing. That's not even dazzling. Instagram. Basically, it's Instagram, but it's like the TV function of Instagram. It's just like, quote Danny Glover, I'm too old for this shit.
1: Put that shit on Netflix. I know where that's at,